We read from the Holy Scriptures this evening from the first epistle of Peter, chapter 1. First Peter, chapter 1. Our text this evening is found in verses 4 and 5 of this chapter. We hear the word of God in 1 Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, Yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand, the sufferings of Christ, and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost, sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy." And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, 
who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So far, we read from God's infallibly inspired word. As I said, our text this evening is found in this passage, 1 Peter 1, verses 4 and 5. 4 and 5, where we read, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, we, at least most of us, are citizens of the United States of America. As such, we have certain rights and certain responsibilities. And the Apostle Peter would have us be good citizens here for God's sake. He addresses our calling with regard to the government, the civil authorities in chapter 2. But perhaps you've heard of such a thing as dual citizenship. Some countries permit its citizens to obtain what is called dual citizenship. When my wife and I lived in Canada for several years, we seriously thought about applying for dual citizenship. But in the end, we didn't pursue it. But in a sense, we as Christians have a dual citizenship. Certainly, we are citizens of an earthly country, but from a spiritual perspective, our citizenship is in heaven. From a practical point of view, I fear our heavenly citizenship often recedes into the background somewhat. We're so busy with the here and the now, so preoccupied with our lives from day to day, relationships, our families, our work, our studies, our recreation, sports, a host of other things. Things in society around us. The pandemic over the last couple of years. Also much that transpires within the church, our churches, with the schism that has beset us and troubles within our own congregation, also at this present time. 
Peter would impress upon us the fact, by grace, we are but pilgrims here. And if there's anything that motivates us and encourages us with regard to that pilgrim calling, it is the glorious inheritance that awaits us in that heavenly country. Yes, we are, but pilgrims here, travelers on our way home, because of God's sovereign election. That's Peter's perspective. God has sovereignly conceived of his people that they should be strangers for a while in the midst of this present world. He elected them out of the world to be a peculiar possession unto himself in distinction also from others. He chose them in divine and eternal and sovereign love that in them he might manifest his life and grace. But by God's grace, we also actually become strangers in this life. More and more, by grace, we are strangers to a world of darkness, to a life of sin, to the things of this present time, so that we do not seek them, we do not set our hearts upon them. We have another life. We have become another people, new creatures in Christ. We are changed into aliens in this world and citizens of another country, the heavenly. And that country we seek. That's home. And we long and hope for it. And we prize it above all the gold and silver, above all the pleasures and treasures of this world, do we not? For it we live and labor day by day. For it we strive and suffer. To gain it we are willing to lose all, even our very lives. Isn't it so? For we have been begotten again unto a lively hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we lift up our heads in hope. We seek that city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And we are given encouragement with the hope of that eternal, incorruptible inheritance that never fades away. And we need that encouragement. We are yet so weak. We are yet so bound to this earth and this life. And our struggles, hardships in this life are many. Our way here below as pilgrims and strangers is not easy. The world hates and persecutes God's people. Here we are often in the fiery furnace of affliction and hardship and sorrow. But still, by grace, we long for the realization of our hope that unspeakably glorious inheritance is ours, reserved in heaven for us. And we are preserved by God's power through faith for it. Now Peter describes that 
inheritance in our text. And as God's children, as pilgrims and strangers here, it's enough to make us a bit homesick. It's in this light that we consider our text under the theme, our certainty of the glorious inheritance. We notice, first of all, that inheritance, secondly, its security, and finally, our preservation. It's obvious, even from skimming over our text, that our heavenly home, this inheritance, is not just an ordinary house, certainly not a shack, nor is it even true that our home is similar to some of the magnificent mansions of the rich and famous. The splendor and the glory of our home in heaven is incomparably wonderful and glorious. The treasures of that home which shall be given to us when we arrive there are treasures which far outweigh in value anything we could possibly possess in this world. Peter speaks of the blessedness of our heavenly home as an inheritance. And that's very significant. You know it's characteristic, generally speaking, of an inheritance that it's given by a father to a son. That was eminently true in the history of the nation of Israel. In the Old Testament times, the families who moved into the promised land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua were each given an inheritance by lot in that land, flowing with milk and honey. And that inheritance was passed on from father to son by law. In fact, it was of essential importance that that law of God be observed. It was God's will that an inheritance remain in the same family. We might recall in that regard Naboth and his vineyard in the Old Testament times of wicked King Ahab and Queen Jezebel in the northern kingdom. King Ahab had set his heart upon having the vineyard of Naboth. What did Naboth respond to the king? We read in 1 Kings 21 verse 3, And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. The Lord forbid it me. Now the earthly symbol and picture is fully realized in the new dispensation where God's people are become God's children. That's not true of us as we are in ourselves, of course. It's true of all men. What Jesus said of the wicked Jews, ye are of your father the devil whose works ye do. But God, by sovereign grace, has adopted his people 
into his own family and made them his sons and daughters. It's emphasized by the Apostle Peter in the verse immediately preceding our text where Peter speaks of the fact that we are begotten again by God by means of this spiritual rebirth. We are given the life of our Heavenly Father and incorporated into His family. And that's why Peter speaks of heaven as an inheritance. What we receive from God is a family inheritance given by our Heavenly Father to us, His children. In addition, it's characteristic of an inheritance that it is simply freely given. One does not earn an inheritance. An inheritance is not wages for work that's been done or a reward merited for service. An inheritance is given simply because of family relationships that exist. One receives an inheritance, generally speaking, because one is a member of the family. No other reason exists. And the importance of this is plain. The inheritance, which is ours, is given to us freely and of sovereign grace. We are incorporated into God's family as a gift of grace, and we receive the inheritance of heaven which our Father has prepared because we are members of God's family. It's not something we earn. It's not payment for work that we've done. It's not a reward for faithful service. It's not wages granted to those that labor. It is, in the strictest possible sense, an inheritance. But what is that inheritance? Obviously, it's not something material. This inheritance is not a matter of dollars and cents, of investments, houses, or lands. It is a heavenly inheritance. And the essence of it all is, in a word, salvation. But it ought to be clear immediately that inasmuch as salvation is the very essence of this inheritance, we have this inheritance already now. We are saved already in this life. And yet Peter makes a very important distinction here, for our present salvation is only in principle. Yes, our hearts have been regenerated, We've been united to our Savior by the bond of a true and living faith. We have the beginnings of the new obedience, but there is yet much of sin in us, and our bodies are still subject to death and the grave. We are heirs of salvation only in a small measure. So our inheritance is the full and complete salvation all the riches of salvation which shall be ours when we go to be with Christ. And salvation includes the full and complete deliverance from sin. Think of it. No more sin. 
That's at the heart of it. No more sin. Isn't it so that really more than anything else that makes this inheritance so attractive to us as God's children? Our longing to go to heaven is not so much because in that distant land we'll walk on streets of gold. Our vision of heaven doesn't consist in floating about on shining clouds. When all is said and done, the attractiveness of heaven is found in the complete freedom from sin. Because here in this world, it is the burden of our sin and misery day after day that weighs heavily upon us to be delivered from sin is the highest good. According to Revelation 22, verse 3, there shall be no more curse. In the previous chapter, Revelation 21, verse 4, includes the effects of the curse of sin. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And yet we can't separate this idea of no more sin from the positive idea of the blessedness of fellowship with our God. That too we have now in principle, of course. We pray to our Heavenly Father, whom we cannot see. Often we come trembling into his presence, hiding, as it were, behind Christ, our Savior. But when at last we're cleansed and delivered from all sin, when we find our rest in heaven, then we shall be with Christ face to face. We will see in the face of Christ our Savior God himself, and the tabernacle of God shall be with men, and he will dwell with them. That means that this inheritance is covenant fellowship with God through Christ, and having fellowship with God, we will be with all the saints made perfect, and with all the holy angels, the happiness and joy shall be complete there for sin and suffering and shame and sorrow shall be gone, yea, forever. All the blessings of salvation of which we have but a small taste now will be ours perfectly and completely and everlastingly. But Peter insists that this inheritance is in heaven nonetheless. Scripture, when it describes heaven, always uses rather figurative language. The realities of heaven are so far beyond our conception and 
even our imagination, that no earthly language is adequate to fully convey their glory. We can be sure of the fact that when once we arrive in glory and really see what heaven is like, we will say, as did the Queen of Sheba, when she was awed by the splendor of Solomon's kingdom and stunned by the glory of his palace, the half has not been told me. But our text describes the wonder of this inheritance using three negative words. Notice that they are negative. For heaven cannot be described for us really in any positive way with the use of positive adjectives. It's simply too wonderful, too glorious for that. And all Peter and Scripture can say is, well, heaven is not like this. It's not like this world. Not like the treasures of this world. It's not like anything we can even imagine here below, which is the object of our senses. And we're forced to speak that way ourselves sometimes. We find it situations where Words simply fall short. Perhaps it's our response to a number of sung by a choir or the student orchestra. And we say, no, no, it's not really like that. Words fail. Words fail to do justice to it. And that's the way Peter, under the inspiration of the Spirit, must speak about this inheritance. It's not corruptible. It's not defiled. It never passes away. Everything here in this world is corruptible, including ourselves, death, rot, decay, surround us. We may cut some beautiful flowers. That experience as we were in Linden, Washington the previous two Sundays, visited a friend who had unbelievably beautiful dahlias and cut a bouquet for us, which we promptly put in water. How beautiful. Tick off three, four, five days, and they are withered, turning brown, curling up, and have to be tossed out. Corruption. All glory fades in this creation. Death reigns. Corruption sets in. Nothing lasts. The Lord Jesus points that out in the Sermon on the Kingdom of Heaven, that the treasures of this world are of such a kind that moth and rust corrupt them. Thieves break through and steal. Heaven is not like this, and we shall not be like this in heaven. There's no change in the beauty of glory and the blessedness of 
the treasures in heaven. They become with each passing day more and more beautiful, for death does not rule there as it does here, and all does not end up in the dust of the earth and is not swallowed up in the chasm of the grave. Nor is there any defilement, for sin shall be gone. Here in this world, all is stained, polluted, made unspeakably dirty by the corruption and filth of sin. All the relationships of this life are defiled by sin. All the marvelous inventions of men are so many tools to pursue evil ends. All the arts and culture become filthy with sin. Music, paintings, literature, all defiled by sin. Man, as it were, leaves his bloody fingerprints of his wickedness on everything he touches, makes dirty all that is about him. It is a grief, but it can't be otherwise. The inheritance in heaven is not like that. It's freed from the stain of sin. Nor can our inheritance in heaven ever pass away. It is, in the strict sense of the word, everlasting. This is our inheritance in the home towards which we are traveling, pressing on in our pilgrim journey. But, beloved, there's always the question, the very important question, will that inheritance really be ours? We know that in this life, the matter of inheritance is often not a sure thing. Suppose a father has gained a accumulated an estate valued at several million dollars, and he has, according to his will, he's leaving that estate to his son. The son may look forward for that day when he will become heir of all that his father owns. But there are two things that could happen that would make him a very disappointed young man. On the one hand, something could happen to the inheritance. It's possible that through some depression or economic collapse, uh, some calamity, the value of his father's estate disappears entirely. When the time comes for him to receive the inheritance, it's worthless. There's really nothing there. It's happened before in this world. It could happen again. But on the other hand, It's also possible that something happens to the young man himself. He may die before his father does. Or he may, through some foolishness, fall from his father's favor and be disinherited. He may, in carelessness and wickedness, make himself unworthy of receiving that inheritance. And when the will is read... At the time of his father's death, he 
may find to his dismay and growing anger that his father has left everything to charity or to someone else. That too has happened and will happen again. The Apostle Peter is concerned lest we think the same thing might happen to us. We might think that something will happen to our inheritance before the time comes to receive it, or it's conceivable that something might happen to us. And of course, that's much more likely. For we are conscious, very conscious of the fact, are we not, that we are frightfully sinful. Every day we commit so many sins that would merit our Father's displeasure. We fall into sin are constantly unworthy children who deserve to be disinherited, written right out of the will. And so to comfort us in this regard and to assure us of the certainty of our inheritance, the apostle adds some very important words. On the one hand, Peter tells us that this inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. God will take care of that inheritance. God will keep it safely as no earthly father is able to keep an inheritance. He will watch over it. He will protect it. He will preserve it carefully so that none of its glory and blessedness are diminished before we are taken home. He will guard it with his own sovereign and all-powerful care. Really, the certainty that this inheritance will be kept for us is to be found in the cross and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. For this inheritance has been merited for us on the cross, and as certain as is the atonement of the Lord Christ and his powerful resurrection from the dead, so certain is our inheritance. Jesus already before his death could say with utmost certainty, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Understand that inheritance was prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. For in God's sovereign and immutable counsel, that inheritance was prepared from eternity. And his people, the objects of his abundant and eternal mercy are in that council the possessors of the incorruptible and undefiled inheritance that never fades away. The Apostle Paul makes that so clear in Romans 8, 29 and 30. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, 
And whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Truly, I have not seen, ear have not heard, it's never entered into the heart of man to conceive what God has prepared for them that love him. That inheritance eternal is already prepared, reserved in heaven for you. It's prepared because centrally it's realized in our Lord Jesus Christ. He merited that inheritance for his brethren. We are co-heirs with him only. Rightful heirs we are not because of any merit or goodness or righteousness of our own. We, of course, had forfeited all and were by nature objects of wrath even as others. Sinful and guilty, we could never stand in ourselves, but we belong to him who is the firstborn among many brethren. He came to take our guilt away to merit for us the righteousness of God out of pure and sovereign love, his suffering and shed blood, his death, his perfect answer to God's love me are the meritorious causes of our being the rightful heirs of the inheritance of eternal glory on him alone, on his atoning blood, his cross and resurrection, our hope is founded. Not only did Christ merit the eternal inheritance for his brethren in the way of his perfect obedience, but that same inheritance is centrally realized in him. And in him, it's reserved in heaven for us. For you and for me who believe on his name, for he was raised from the dead, and being raised, he was clothed with glory, the very glory of that incorruptible and undefilable inheritance that never fades away. And into the glory of that inheritance in the highest heavens, he was received, and he is filled with the Spirit. And with all the gifts of grace necessary to realize for all his brethren the final salvation that is to be revealed in the last time, he is the central realization of that glorious inheritance in heaven. And therefore, it's all prepared. It's reserved there in heaven. And no power of darkness is capable of reaching into that inheritance to destroy its glory and beauty. No, we, we cannot yet see with these earthly eyes that inheritance. With the eyes of faith, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And we know that that inheritance is reserved in heaven for us. It is secure, perfectly secure. 
But not only is that inheritance very carefully preserved for us, but we are preserved by God so that we shall surely inherit the treasure which God has prepared. We are, as Peter proclaims, guarded by God's power, kept by the power of God. There's clearly a figure that underlies this expression, figure of a mighty city, high, wide walls, guarded and protected from every assault of the enemy. The city is impregnable, unable to be taken, a mighty fortress. God's power is the protection of his people. We are small, we are insignificant, we are weak, frail. Our enemies are many and mighty, which seek our destruction. Not the least is our own sinful flesh. But God's power is entirely adequate to preserve and guard us. That's not only because God's power is much greater than the power of all of our enemies, so that in any contest we can be sure that God would be victorious, but rather God's power is so complete and so universal that it extends also over all our enemies. They can do nothing apart from his will. They cannot so much as move. What comfort in the midst of the evil days in which we live. And notice too that God's power is the power of perfect wisdom. God knows the best way to prepare his people for and take them unto glory. God knows how all things are able to serve that purpose in the best way. And this is the power of love and grace, where God loves his people with a sovereign, eternal love which is manifest in the cross. All things which happen to us come in God's infinite love. And beloved, it is the power of the cross itself, the power of that complete and final victory of Jesus Christ over all the forces of sin and death. But understand, God wants us to know and be fully aware of our inheritance, our perfect salvation, and the way to that final and glorious heavenly home. Therefore, the power of God works in us through faith. Through faith, which is the power as it is the gift of God's grace. Never is it a condition which you must fulfill, but it is that power of God that works in our hearts, enabling us to cling in hope to that God of our salvation who will never let us go 
And so God preserves not only our inheritance, but also us. And we persevere until we attain our glorious inheritance, that inheritance which is ready to be revealed in the last time. That means that it's already prepared. That makes it objectively real. And this idea is in harmony with the rest of the text that emphasizes that this inheritance is reserved in heaven. That it is to be revealed means that at the present time, it's hidden, as it were, from our view. It's behind the curtain of the heavenly. This revelation can be compared to the unveiling of a statue. A statue may be covered up, hidden under a veil. But when that veil is removed, the statue is revealed. And so our inheritance, our final and glorious salvation is ready to be unveiled. And what an unveiling that will be. The very thought stirs in us eager anticipation. As we said, that which eye has not seen, nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man to conceive, is that which God has laid away for those who love Him. As we've noted, words are not adequate to begin to describe it. It's ready to be revealed in the last time. Time here must be understood not from the point of view of its being the succession of moments, though it's no doubt true that there is such a succession at the end of which shall be the last moment of time as we know it now. Yet, Time, according to our text here, must not be viewed as we watch it ticking off the clock or our watch. Rather, time must be understood here as the opportune occasion, the very last event that will occur in time and history. To that last occasion in history, all other events work. The entire eternal counsel of God has as its central and final objective the revelation of this inheritance. And all history is but the unfolding of this plan and counsel of God. The very last event that fills up this purpose of God is the final and glorious salvation of his people when we shall be united with him, that inseverable bond and abide with him in his glory, then time as we know it will be no more. Then the counsel of God with respect to history shall be finished. Then with all of God's redeemed creation, we shall enter into and abide in our glorious inheritance, that 
That will be glory indeed. But meanwhile, until then, we continue on for a time in our pilgrim journey. And we watch and we pray. We repent. We return. We fight the battle of faith even to the end. By faith we hope and trust, clinging all the while to the covenant God of our salvation. And so we are not kept in God's power without anything hurtful touching us, but by the power of God working in us and through us by faith. But what, what a glorious inheritance, beloved. Is that the object of your hope? This heavenly inheritance? If not, if all this talk of a heavenly inheritance means nothing to you, if it does not make you a bit homesick, if you have only a purely carnal hope for the here and the now, the Word of God says, repent. The things of this present time surely perish, and all the ungodly shall perish with them. This world is passing away with the lusts thereof. But if through the wonder of God's grace we have received that power of faith, we too are kept, safely kept, in the power of God. Through faith, unto the salvation that is to be revealed to us in the last time, then we surely experience that we are but pilgrims and strangers here in the world, but we continue on day by day in hope, a hope that will never make us ashamed, for that inheritance is safe, kept for us, reserved in heaven for us. Its glory is staggering, its Blessedness is all the object of our hope. The certainty of receiving it is greater than all earthly security. What an incentive this becomes to faithfulness in our pilgrim way. Thanks be to God, the God of our salvation. Amen. Most merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, what Marvelous things thou dost hold up before our eyes of faith, the things of heaven, that city which has foundations, that inheritance which is so unspeakably glorious. Strengthen our faith, we pray. May we go forward encouraged, girded up for our pilgrim journey, even in the week which lies before us now. Forgive us our worldly-mindedness. Lead us in the way everlasting. For Jesus' sake, amen.